I want to remind everybody our message. Our, our mission, our mission, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. We want people to know Jesus as their Savior and live their life for King Jesus. Usually, when a preacher preaches around Easter, there's a message the Sunday before, and it's on the triumphant, triumphal entry. I didn't do that. I didn't preach on that. I stuck into the book of Romans. And then Easter Sunday, always about the resurrection. you got to preach. I think that's in the Southern Baptist handbook. I don't know. That you have to preach on the resurrection on, on Easter Sunday. It only makes sense to me. Well, I didn't preach on the triumphal entry because I wanted to preach this message today about the church. Um, so my sermon title today, we're going to go through a whole bunch of different text. It's called, I'm calling this the purpose of the church. Because Jesus died and Jesus rose, and now what is the church supposed to be doing? Okay, that's what we're going to be talking about today. And with that, uh, I, I have a video I want to share with you. Okay, so this is a message from a good friend of mine that he's he's brought for us. And he wants to share with us. So, can we play the first video? Isn't that amazing? Is that not the most life-changing message you've ever heard in your life? No? No, nobody? Okay, I've got one more. Let's see if you can get it. Okay, one more. One more video, please. Yohanna 3.16 لأنه هكذا أحب الله العالم حتى بذل ابنه الوحيد لكي لا يهلك كل من يؤمن به بل تكون له الحياة الأبدية Yohanna what do you think? Is that not a message that will change the world? Y'all looking like a calf at a new gate. Don't know what I'm talking about, right? Well, the first one's a good friend of mine. I'm going to call him Jimmy, not his real name. And he's, he's a missionary at some part of the world, really shrinking it down there for you. But he, he said he had a message. And then my friend, that's Pastor uh, Jason Alnemery from Valley Baptist Church. He, 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 was, uh, he was sharing a little message in Arabic. And here's what they said. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever should believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, was there anything wrong with what they said? No. That was perfect. That is the message of the Bible, that there is forgiveness and redemption through Jesus Christ. And the reason why I share this with you is because often I think churches can be saying the right thing, but they're saying it in a way that lost people don't understand. They're like, you're not speaking the same language as me. And so we say things, like I remember back, it was, it, I've read about this, I wasn't a Christian back then, but there was some time ago, Christians would say, are you covered in the blood? And we'd go, uh, no, that's weird. What are you talking about blood? I'm out of here. But, you know, Christians, we say things like, kind of like that. We say other things now, or maybe we talk about redemption and salvation and sanctification and all these big churchy words. And people that aren't Christian just look at us like, what in the world are you talking about? So not only are we called to take this message to individuals that don't know Jesus Christ, their Savior, but we must say it, communicate that same message in a way they're going to hear us. Does that make sense? Hopefully it does. Because the message isn't changing. The message is the gospel that we can be saved through what the King Jesus did for us on the cross. And then we celebrated last week how he rose from the grave to promise new life. So let's communicate that message in a way that's not necessarily the way I want to hear it, but the way they need to hear it, if that makes sense. So with that, we're going we're gonna to be talking about the church. Why? Because Jesus died. And he rose again. Can we agree on that? 
Amen. That Jesus died and he rose again. And then what happened? What happened after the resurrection? Well, he was with his followers for 40 days. And during those 40 days, he gave them a commandment. And in case you didn't know, a commandment is a commandment. It's not a suggestion. Yet there's a large percentage of people that call themselves followers of Jesus Christ that treat it like a suggestion. I could take it or leave it. No! Jesus didn't die on the cross and then resurrect the grave to leave us a little suggestion. He gave us marching orders. He gave us marching orders that we are to follow. Okay? Jesus said, hey, there's some things you're going to do. Kind of like I tell my kids, hey, you're going to do this. And they go, oh, when we get to. Oh, no, you're not. I told you to do this. You're going to do it now. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 28, verse 19. Jesus says, go therefore... Make disciples of the nation. That's the way Matthew records it, okay? Listen to the way Luke records it in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, it says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said, It's not for you to know the times or the season that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So King Jesus, he says, hey, I'm God come the flesh. I'm going to die for your sins. I'm going to raise again on the third day. And so all authority has been given to me. This is what I want you to do. And the disciples come and say, hey, resurrected king of the universe, Messiah, we want to talk about politics. That's what happened there. And Jesus says, I don't want to talk about politics. I want you to go be a witness. Tell people about me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But you know, at that moment, the followers of Jesus Christ couldn't possibly have understood the scope of what he was saying there. You know what he meant when he said to the ends of the earth? I think that part's easy for us. It means every single corner, every nook and cranny, every person, every regardless of, of gender or color or nationality, ethnicity, they need to hear about Jesus. And you know what he meant when he said Samaria? I think this is what he meant. Like the people over there. The people that are kind of far away, but not all that far away for us, think Canada, Mississippi. You know, it's far away, but it's not really far away. But what did Jesus say before those two? He said, Jerusalem and Judea, right? You know what he meant by that? He meant the people in your backyard. I would say it like this, people of Warland. That's who Jesus is telling us to go be a witness to. You know, people strategize about how to reach unreached, unengaged people groups in some far off country, all that have never heard the name of Jesus, and that's great. We should absolutely be doing that. But what about people in our backyard? What about the people that we rub shoulders with? What about our, our friends that live next door to us? What about that other family that's on our kid's soccer team? How about them? How about the people that we shop with at Blair's? Who is supposed to be a witness to those people? Cross Point Baptist Church, that's who. We are to be a witness to all the people that don't know Jesus in Washkie County. Okay? My church, your church, this church, it's really Jesus' church. And King Jesus has commanded us, go be my witness. So here's the question then, well, what's the church? 
Because that's what somebody's going to ask. The concept of church is simple. But the truth is, we made it terribly complex. Church is not a building. It's not budgets. It's not board meetings. It's not booming programs. The church is not about what I want. The church is not about what you want. Okay? It's, It's about what King Jesus wants. And King Jesus wants lost people to hear about him. He wants lost people to hear about the grace of God that only comes through what he did on the cross and then rose from the grave. That's what he wants. Do you remember the old Burger King slogan? Anybody remember that? I know. What was it? You're right. That is the old Burger King slogan. That's Burger King slogan, but that's not because the slogan of the church. We don't get to have it our way. The church is not about our comfort. It's about what Jesus wants. You know, so many people judge a church and judge a pastor about how they feel. Oh, man, when I came there, I felt so good about that that message. And so if they feel good about the message and they feel good about the the preacher, but if they feel bad about themselves, well, then they say, I must have been a bad preacher. And by that standards, I hope to be a terrible preacher. Because a great preacher should make you feel terrible about yourself, but then great about God, about who he is and what he's done for us. You see, what we should see in every sermon, we should see this massive divide about a holy, perfect, omniscient God and how sinful we are. And yet at the same time, he desires to use us to build his kingdom. That's amazing. The church is about building a kingdom. The kingdom belongs to God. And the church has a mission And our mission, we've decided, and this is what we're calling it, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. That's it. That's our mission. So the church is a gathering. The church is a people. This building, this is just bricks and sticks. That's all this is. The building over on South 15 in Washkie, bricks and sticks. It's just a building. It's not the church. So if you are a believer, then you are the church. You're part of the church. And God has moved in, and he wants to kick some things out of your life since you are his church. There are some things that he does not want in your life if you're a believer. There are some sacred cows that God wants slaughtered from all of us. That's what he wants. God wants to do something new in your life. He wants something new, and that new thing is this. He wants you to tell people about him. That's what he wants. And God is sovereign, That means God is in control, and God has brought people into your life, and God has brought those people into your life so that you can tell those people about him. The New Testament, it describes the church as a bride, okay? And maybe you're a guy, and you're like, I don't don't like being called a bride. Here's what I'll say to that. Tough. Get over it. Jesus is the groom. You're the bride. I'm the bride. We're the bride. And he wants the bride to be pure and unblemished, And spotless, that's what he requires for his bride. And you know he's coming back? You don't know this, Jesus is coming back. And when he's going to come back, here's the question, are we going to be ashamed? Will we be ashamed of what the time that he's given us, we spent doing about stuff that didn't even matter? How dare we? Are we going to be ashamed because we spent some time that he's given us doing things that are harmful to the kingdom of God? Will we be ashamed? It never be. Because we're supposed to be about building a kingdom. That's it. The word church in the Greek is ekklesia. It means the ones who are called out. So if we're called out, what are we called out from? 
Because the nature of the church is to be called out. So we were called out from the system of the world. We're called out of the, from the way the world thinks. We're called out from doing and acting like the world would. The church or the, the people that are called out from the world, we are to be distinct from the world. There was a day when Jesus said, you are of the world, or you are in the world, but you're not of the world. Do you remember that? I mean, this is amazing. Really considers that the church is the vehicle that a sovereign God, his name is Jesus, has chosen to share the hope of the world. And it, the world that we live in, it is starved from hope. It seems so hopeless in this world. They're starved for meaning in life. They're starved for a purpose in life. They're starved because the questions they, life, they, they have in life are absolutely empty if you don't look beyond this life and this world. And here's the thing, church. We have the answers. We have the answers to life. We have the good news. We have the gospel. We're called to share that. It's been said that a person can live approximately 40 days without food, can live four days without water, can live four minutes without oxygen, but they can't live four seconds without hope. And I say this with all, every ounce of sincerity and courage I can, but why are people taking their own lives at, at rates we've never even seen before? Why? What, what, because they believe a lie, and the lie is that there is no hope because this life is all there is. That's a lie. A lie from the pit of hell. For a believer, this world is as bad as this world is ever going to get. But the next life, it's going to be awesome. It is. But in the here and the now, the church, you and me, we are to give people hope, and the hope is Jesus Christ. Give them Jesus the church is supposed to be a pillar of truth. In the book of 1 Timothy, Paul was writing this very young pastor. And he's telling him, hey, this is what it's going to look like to be a pastor. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. You've you got to be above reproach. People are going to be trying to take you out left and right. That's what he tells this, this pastor. And then Paul describes the church. Because if you're going to be a pastor, you've got to know what the church is. Let, read in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. Paul says, if I delay... That you may ought to know, you, you, that you may know what one ought to, how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar of buttress and truth. You see, a church has to be rock solid on its conviction. A church has to be laser focused on what matters, and what matters is the gospel. And getting the gospel to people who don't understand the gospel, that's it. And so as believers, the, the, this, this fact this, that we are called the church, it should affect our lives, and, and we should operate this church the way God said to. Okay? So often churches just operate what's kind of practical for them or kind of what's worked in the past. But if a church doesn't operate the way God said to in this book, then it's not going to receive, achieve the results that Jesus wants us to. You see... Jesus is the head of the church, and he calls the shots, and he tells us how the church is to operate. Read in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. It says, and he, and that he, that pronoun is, is Jesus. He's talking, Paul is talking about Jesus there. And he, Jesus, is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Time out, if you don't know this. Jesus is God. 
very clearly Jesus is holding this very universe and the very atoms that are in make up your body. He's holding it together. Verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in him he might be preeminent. In him, Jesus, everything might be preeminent. What does that mean? That means first rank. That means the best, the greatest. It means before anything else, Jesus would come first. Why is Jesus preeminent? Well, because he is the image of the invisible God. He is the, the agent of creation. That there was a day when there was nothing and Jesus spoke and nothing became everything. And he speaks and he sustains life and he is the head of the church. So that means he calls the shots. No pastor calls the shots. I don't call the shots. Jesus calls the shots. And this isn't my church. This isn't your church. This is Jesus' church. Okay? He's the chief shepherd. And maybe you, you don't understand what I'm talking about. Maybe you don't understand church terms. Here's a, a business term. He is the CEO of the church. In fact, he is the CEO of the universe. That's who Jesus is. And he has told us what the church is supposed to look like. And he's told us how we're to behave. And he's told us how we're to interact with the lost. And he is preeminent. He is the sustainer of life. He is the head of the church. And he was dead, but he came, he came back. He's no longer dead. He conquered our greatest fear and our greatest enemy that anybody has. And that is death. And he is alive. You know why? Because the tomb is empty. All of Christianity points to an empty tomb. Christianity is so radically different than any other system of thinking then because Jesus said, hey, I'm God. And I'm going to come there and I'm going to die for your sins and be buried in a tomb and three days later I'm going to come back from the grave. And then he did it. He proved what he said is, is true by the resurrection. And did you know that Jesus promised to build his church? That's what he said. There was a day when Jesus took his disciples up to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was like ground zero for the occult. There's all sorts of wickedness that's going on. There's this, there was this giant cave there, and there was this spring of water flowing out. At that time, they called it the gates of hell. And there was an earthquake, and now the, the, today you go there, the water's coming somewhere else. But that time, the water was coming right out, and that's where all sorts of just debauchery and horrible wickedness was going on, not limited to child sacrifice. And Jesus looked at all this going around. He looks at people just doing the most despicable acts you could possibly imagine. He said, who do people say that I am? And his disciples pop off. They had different answers. And then he said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter spoke up and said, you are the Christ. That, that word Christ, it, it's Christos in the Greek. It's, it means Messiah. He's saying, you are the savior of the world. You are the son of the living God. And then Jesus responded. He replied, as it's found in Matthew 16, verse 18. Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Some say, oh, what, 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 what Jesus was doing, he's saying he's going to build his, his church on Peter because that's why Peter became the first pope. No. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus said that he's going to build his church on the rock, on the confession, the words that came out of Peter's mouth. Captain Foot in his mouth, Peter, he got it right on that day. 
But Jesus is the Christos. He is the Savior. He is the Messiah. Jesus is God come in the flesh. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know what that means? That means nothing's going to stop the church. Nothing's going to stop King Jesus from building the church. Do you know what gates? He talked about the gates of hell. Gates are defensive units. They're not offensive units. And Jesus said the church is on the offense. And that offensive unit is going to destroy the gates of hell. Jesus said nothing is going to stop me from destroying the gates of hell. Pastors won't stop Jesus from building his church. Church members won't stop Jesus from building his church. Sin won't stop Jesus from building his church. Mediocrity on our part will not stop Jesus from building his church. Unfaithfulness on our part will not stop Jesus from building the church. Why? Because he's faithful to build his kingdom. And he calls us to be a part of that. Isn't that amazing that King Jesus would want us to to help him do that? Not that he needs our help, but he chooses to use us. And he says, Satan and hell will not stand against the church. I think there's times we give way too much credit for Satan because he's not going to stop the church. God is in control. God is all-powerful. God is going to build his kingdom. And the gospel is the offense, and Satan's on the defense. And if you don't know this, read the end of the book. We know how the story ends. There's going to be an apocalyptic war like we have never seen in the history of time. And in the end, when it's all over, Jesus wins. Satan loses. That's how it ends. Okay? And Jesus is going to get this done either with us or without us. Why would we choose not to to be with him? to, to, To be faithful to what he said to do. And then when it's all over, when it's all said and done, there's going to be this great white throne judgment. It's called the Bema Seat, where believers go to. It's not for, not for a judgment like a bad way. It's where we're going to get rewards. And if you're faithful, rewards. No faith, so faithfulness equals rewards. Unfaithfulness equals no rewards. And then after that, Christ is going to usher in a thousand-year reign. And so that's going to be our new home for a thousand years. It's going to be awesome. Then after that, a new heaven and a new earth. But in the meantime, followers of Jesus are supposed to be telling people about him. We're supposed to be sharing the gospel message and the gates of hell shall not prevail. We are to be sharing a message of grace and hope. The world needs to know. You know, but I got to be honest, sometimes we see darkness in our culture We see lostness in humanity. We see the prevalence of wickedness all around us. We see injustice at every turn and corner in our, I mean, just turn on the TV. We don't have to go very far to see something that just makes us want to crawl in the fetal position and put, lock our doors and hug our kids and put the garage door down and never go outside. Because we think, we think like that because it seems like the gospel is losing ground to us. But here's the deal. Jesus loses no ground. The kingdom is advancing. The church is the hope of the world. We can, be part, we can be part of the plan, part of the solution, which is delivering the gospel to people that don't know Jesus. Read with me in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. The word of God says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Here's my first point for us this morning. Point number one, the church is a family. 
I hope you like that. <laughs> but the church is a family. It's the household of God. It doesn't say the church is like a family. The church is a family. The church is a spiritual family. In fact, this spiritual family is going to be your family long after your, your, your here and earth, earth family, your here and now family is no longer your family. We're going to be family way longer. And so we're going to be one big happy family in heaven. So we better learn to get along while we're down here. Because we're going to be spending eternity together in heaven. We better learn to do it in the here and now. So Paul says that the church is the household of God and that we are members of the household of God. So once you get saved, once you place faith in Jesus Christ, once you've given him your life, you are placed into the body of Christ. And we call that the universal church. Jesus never uses that word. That's something we call it so we can understand it. And so what's going to happen is every believer from every generation, from eternity past, is all going to be part of God's universal family. Read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. It says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. We are all made to drink of one spirit. So when you trust Jesus as your savior, in case you haven't done that yet, you need to do that. You don't need to wait for me. You can do it now. Um, that means turn from your sin and turn to Jesus in faith. And when you do that, you are baptized with the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, and you are placed into the body of Christ. That's a universal church. That, that you become members of, church, of, the, of Christ's body. So baptism is not something you seek. It's really a fact that you, a reality you want to know. Read in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18. Paul says, and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? I'll say it like this. It means to be controlled. It means to be permeated by God. It means thoroughly influenced by God. You see, what are believers supposed to be doing in the here and now? What are they supposed to be doing with their lives? Believers are supposed to be submitting to God and allowing him to guide you and to direct you and to influence your life because you're not your own now. You've been bought with a price. You belong to him. And so, so, many, so often people are fighting against the spirit. They're, hey, this is what I want, but it's not about what we want. It's about what God wants. Don't fight against God. Let, let him be in control. Here's my second point this morning. Point number two. A follower of Jesus without a church family is an orphan. Every single Christian needs a church family. A, a, a Christian without a church family, that, that's like somebody saying, you know, I want to be, uh, I want to be in, uh, playing the NFL, but I don't want to be on one team. That's crazy. Hey, I want to play in the NBA, but I don't want to be on just one team. I want to play on all the teams. If you're not part of a local church and you are robbing yourself of being part of God's grand design, every single one of us, we need a church family. And the New Testament gives, gives metaphors for, for the church. It uh, says the church is a flock. The church is a bride. We talked about that. The church is a body. But here's the, the church is an organism. It's not an organization. The church is a hospital for sinners. It's not a clubhouse for saints. The, the church is a body. It's not a building. The church is the people. It's, it's not the steeple. 
The church is, is people you know. It's not a place you go. So if you're a believer, we are the body of Christ. That's what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So that means some of us are the eyes, some of us are the nose, the ears, the hands, the feet, whatever. That means we all have a role to play. And if you're disjointed from the body, then the whole body suffers. You know, our pinky toe seems like a pretty insignificant body part, right? Nobody ever thinks about their, their pinky toe until that time you get up in the middle of the night and you stub it on the corner of the bed. Then holy smokes, that's all that matters is that little disjointed pinky toe and nothing's going to go right until you get that pinky toe back where it's supposed to go. So here's what I'm saying about that. If you're a believer, then we need you. And you need us. We, 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 we need each other. But here, here's a question to ask yourself, and I'm going to spend the bulk of the sermon talking about this, is what makes a church healthy? What makes a healthy church, right? And here's my answer to that. What makes a healthy church is a commitment to a great commandment and a commitment to the great commission. And I say that because that's what Jesus said. Okay? A church should be born by two things, loving God and loving people. Read with me, if you would, the, the, the great commandment. It's found in Matthew 22, beginning in verse 36. It says, a man came to him, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now let's jump over and read the Great Commission. It's found just a few pages later in Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. How much authority? All authority. All authority has been given to Jesus. Verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the primary way that we are to operate, we are to love God. And when you love God, you're going to love people. You see, you can't love God and not love people. The two go hand in hand. Let me ask you, what is the single most loving thing you can do? Here it is. Go tell somebody that doesn't know Jesus about Jesus. That is the most loving thing you can do. Lost people, people that don't know Jesus, they need to know Jesus. And if you love them, then you're going to go tell them. You know, I, I read this text, those two, those two sets of scriptures, and really I see five purposes in the church. I mean, and we're going to go through them here today. And those five purposes have been modeled for us in Acts chapter 2. And these purposes have been prayed for by Jesus in John chapter 17. And those purposes have been explained in Ephesians chapter 4. And they are best expressed in the five verbs of the great commandment and the great commission. How do you know if a church is a healthy church or not? How do you know if a church is a church that you want to be part of? How do you know if a church is a church you want to take your family to and you want to plug your family to and invest your life into? Here it is simply. They're balanced on these five principles. And here's per principle or purpose number one. Purpose number one of the church, worship. That's the first one, okay? Our first purpose of a healthy church is worship. And we get this from the, the great commandment, Matthew 22. 
And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Loving God is worship. And expressing love to God is what worship is. Worship is not just a part of your life. It's supposed to be your life. Worship is not music. It is so much more than just musical expression or experience. It's worship is so much more than what we do here for you know, 15, 20 minutes before the sermon starts. Worship is not what we do. Worship is who we are. It, it, worship is not a time slot. Worship is a lifestyle. The psalmist talks about worship with like surgical precision. Read in Psalms 29 verse 1. The psalmist says, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. The psalmist says, ascribe, that, that means give. Give God the glory he is due. That's what he's saying. So worship is ascribing God. It's, it's giving to him. It's saying to him, you know what, you are more valuable than anything. God, Jesus, the God man that saved me, you are more valuable than anything. You're more valuable than my life. You're more valuable than the way I like things done. That's what ascribing to God the glory that's due to his. Here's the question I have for you. Can you honestly say you do this? Think about it. You, do you honestly give God the glory that is due him? I mean, do you honestly can say, you know what, Jesus, you are more valuable than anything this world has to offer. Do you treasure Jesus above all things? So worship is a lifestyle. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, sometimes 366 every fourth year, right? So you don't slot a time to worship Jesus. You live your life worshiping him. Read in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. The word of God says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to present. That's worship. We're to, to, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And by our bodies, I think he means more than just this physical body. He means our heart, our soul, our mind, all that we are. We are to give it to God. It is daily surrender. That's what it is. So worship goes beyond the weekend experience that we do here in this building. It happens in your private life. Happens in your public life. Happens in your work life. Happens in your marriage life. Happens in your parenting life. Everything is you're giving it to King Jesus Worship involves full surrender. And when you surrender yourself to God, what you do is you put, you, you put yourself under his authority and, and really you get his power to defeat sin in your life because God's presence will, will bring peace and God's, will, that is God's will for our life to be telling people about him and be living for him. And when you surrender, that's worship. That's your spiritual worship. So the question to you is, are you committed to worshiping God? Not just on Sunday, but every single day of your life. Here's purpose number two of a healthy church. Purpose number two, ministry. So we got worship and we got ministry. And I say this because of Matthew 22. It says, and Jesus said, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor 
as yourself. So we are to love the person next to us like we love ourselves. And the Bible uses terms like service or ministry. Service flows out of our worship, our love for God. Because God said, if you love me, you will love others. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we talked about it before, but Paul uses the metaphor of a body as this metaphor for the church. Read in 1 Corinthians 12, 12. He says, for just as the body is one with many members, all the members of the body through though many are one body. So it is with Christ. So again, if you're a believer, some of us are eyes or ears or nose or feet or hands or whatever. And just like a body needs every body part, the church needs you. Every believer in this room and worldwide at the moment of salvation is given a spiritual gift. Okay? And do you know what you need to do with that? You need to unwrap it. How crazy would it be if somebody gave you a gift, you took it home, and oh, I'm just going to leave it here. Man, I just, that's some pretty wrapping. Man, that's some pretty wrapping paper. What is it? I don't know. But I just love the wrapping paper. That's craziness. Open the gift and use the gift. That's why God give it, gave it to you. And our spiritual gift is meant to be discovered And it's supposed to be used for the purpose of maybe encouraging or strengthening or or serving others. So how do you use your gift? How do you use your spiritual gift, your spiritual talents, your spiritual skill set, your ability? Use it for Jesus. Use it to grow his kingdom because that is your thank you back to him for giving it to you. Read in Romans chapter 12 verse 6. The word of God says, having gifts that differ according to the grace that's given to us, let us use them. You see that in your Bible? Let us use them. If prophecy in portion to our faith, if service in our service, the one who teaches in his teaching, and the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, and the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, do for the body what God gifted you to do. He's saying, if you're supposed to be serving, you need to be serving. If you're supposed to be teaching, you need to be teaching. Every believer has has an important part of the body to play. So you have been wired with a spiritual gift at the moment of salvation. Use it. You gotta find it. And use it. This is what I want you to know about your gift or how to, how to discover your gift. You don't need some spiritual survey. This is what you need to do. Plug in and serve. Be, be a member of a church. Plug in and start serving. If it's not the right spot, God will tell you. Then go somewhere else. That's okay. I mean, go to some other area of the church. We got a million different ministries here. And we need somebody for everyone. So come talk to us. Here's the third purpose of a healthy church. Give me, give me number three now evangelism so we got worship we got ministry we got evangelism and i say this because of the great commission matthew 28 it says and jesus came and said to them all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me go therefore make disciples of all nations in matthew 28 that text that we that i read um so often the emphasis gets stuck on go But it's not on the go. It's on the make disciples. Because when Jesus said that in the Greek, that's where the imperative is. It's given in the mood of a commandment. 
So again, Jesus is not given the great suggestion. He's given us the great commission. Okay? In a sense, he's given his last will and testament. Here's the marching orders before I go back to heaven and sit at the right hand of the Father until I come back. Go make disciples. That's what we're commanded to do by God. So here's a question. What's a disciple? Well, a disciple is a learner, a follower. You see, the Great Commission is Jesus' plan to change the world. And he does it one person at a time. You know what's amazing? And he wants you to be part of it. Isn't that amazing? And here's the thing. God's not looking for the smartest. God's not looking for the brightest. God's not looking for that Christian that's got it all together. That's not what he's looking for. He's looking for a Christian that's available. A, A person named Bertha Smith said, if you make yourself available, God will wear you out. Question. Are you available? Are you available for God's plan? Or are you too, ava- too tied up doing other things? So how do you, how do we, how do we make disciples? Step one, go. Step two, baptize. Step three, teach them all that I've observed. Obey. And again, the imperative's not on go. The imperative is on make disciples. And you know what makes the great co-mission Great, there's two little letters at the beginning. The co, C-O. You know what that means? Jesus is with us. That means we go with him. So we're not on our own. Jesus is with us. The mission is a partnership. Now, this is wild because King Jesus could have done this by himself. He doesn't need us, but he sovereignly chooses to use us to build his kingdom. So this is what we should do with our lives with our lost friends, our lost family members that don't know Jesus, that aren't Christians. We build a bridge of love, just one plank at a time. Then just stand back and let Jesus walk over that bridge. That's what we're to do. William Booth, he was the founder of the Salvation Army. It began in England. There was a day when he sent a man across the Atlantic Ocean to be a missionary to, to this land. And his goal was to reach people in his community with the gospel. And he said he tried music, he tried services, he tried events, he tried prayer, and nothing worked. And so he wrote William Booth a letter and said, no one's interested, nobody cares, nobody wants to hear the good news, nobody wants anything to do with Jesus. And so Booth wrote back a two-word telegram. And the two words were, try weeping. Let me ask you, When's the last time you cried over the lostness in our community? When's the last time you cried thinking about someone that you love that doesn't know Jesus that if they die today will spend eternity separated from Jesus? When's the last time with tears filled in your eyes you begged Jesus, please Jesus, save them? When's the last time you said, God, use me to save them? Does the gospel move you emotionally to just cry, to beg God, to forgive somebody, to save somebody? Does the good news make you just just break your heart for all the lostness around us? You see, that's what the gospel should do. The gospel should move you to tears and then to action for his glory. Bring lost people to him. Here's the fourth purpose of the church. Purpose number four, fellowship. 
And I get this from the Great Commission, Matthew 28. He said, Jesus said, baptize him in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. See, baptism is a symbol of incorporation. We're saying, this is what Jesus did for me. We, he died for me and he rose again. And so the person in the water says, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of Jesus and what he did for me. It's a symbol of salvation, but it's also you telling the whole world, I'm not ashamed of Jesus. That's you saying, I've been saved by the grace of God and I identify with what Christ has done. And so a Christian's baptism, it doesn't save anybody, but it's saying, I'm in fellowship with Christ. And that fact puts you in fellowship with other believers. So we are not called to just believe, but we are called to belong. We are called to be his property. He bought us with a price, and the price was his blood. But here's the problem. We got lots of believers and not enough belongers. All the time people are saying, you know what, they say crazy things like, I love Jesus, I just don't like his church very much. Well, Jesus is the groom, we're his bride. That'd be like saying to me, you know that Pastor John, he's a good guy, I like him, but I can't stand Amy. Somebody thinks like that? Well, then I got a problem with you. If you don't like Amy, then I'm not real fond of you. Every husband in the room say the same thing about, about your wife, right? That's the way it works with King Jesus too. We, we are to be people that, that, that are that members of the church and love the church. Jesus died for the church. We need to do the same. We need to be willing to die for, to grow the kingdom of God. Here's the fifth and last purpose I see from this. Purpose number five, discipleship. So we got worship, we got ministry, we got evangelism, we got fellowship, and we got discipleship. Matthew 28, Jesus said, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Teach them to observe. Teach them to obey. That's discipleship. Somebody asks, well, what, what is discipleship? Here's the simplest answer I can come up with. Making copies of Jesus. That's what it is. God called us not just to be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. So how can we be doers of the word? Well, first, you got to stick your nose in this book. You got to read it. You got to know it. And then you got to go do it. And when, you're, when you know this stuff and you start doing this stuff, what happens is it begins to transform your, your, your heart. It starts to transform your mind. Because this book is not a book of information. It's a book of transformation. So what happens, we start exposing our mind to it, it transforms our life, it transforms our thinking, it changes our affections. And the end result, we start reflecting Christ. We will be conformed to the image of Christ. So discipleship is making copies of Jesus. Read in Luke 9, verse 23. It says, and he said to all, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily. Follow me. So what are the marks of a disciple? The marks of discipleship, one, self-denial, because Jesus said deny himself. Number two, it's sacrifice, because Jesus said take up your cross. And three, it's submission. Jesus said follow me. So I don't want anybody saying, I follow Pastor John, or I follow so-and-so. I follow, No, follow Jesus. Jesus calls the shots. Not just in this church, but in your personal life as well. 
That's who should be calling the shots. Who, that's who should be leading you is Jesus. Are you allowing God to shape you, to form you into a community of believers, into the image of Jesus? Those are the marks of a disciple, a follower of Christ. And so when you come to Christ, when you give him your life, when he saves you from sin, saves you from hell, makes you suitable for, for heaven, discipleship is not an option. And let me say, discipleship, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. It's a lifetime commitment. And you're not going to be done with this race until the day you die. Let me say, oh, there's a so-and-so, there's such a mature Christian. Not so. There's only maturing Christians. There's no mature Christians. So again, that means you're not done until the day you die. God calls us to make two commitments. One, a commitment to him. But he also calls us to personal growth. That's discipleship. That's growing and maturing in Christ. Okay? So in a moment, we are saved. That happens in a blink of an eye, quicker than that. That we recognize who Jesus is and we recognize who we are. We turn from our sins, turn to Jesus in faith. We're saved in a moment. But then we're sanctified over a lifetime. That means that salvation is not the end of your life. That means the, this is the very beginning of life. So as long as you're breathing, if you're a Christian, now you're a maturing Christian. And we should have a commitment to a personal mission, and that's evangelism, sharing the good news. I need you to know that evangelism without discipleship, it lacks power. If you are sharing the gospel with somebody, but let your life looks nothing like Jesus's, you're missing out on the power. Your life needs to match your lips. If, you, if, 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 if you're just doing this, but your life looks like garbage, well, then there's really no power in that. How we live needs to back up what we say. And then discipleship without evangelism lacks purpose. If you're going to all the Bible studies you can think of, but you're not telling anybody about Jesus, you're missing the mark. Okay? The, the, we, you maybe have lots of head knowledge, but if you're not sharing the gospel, then you completely miss the bullseye. You have missed your very purpose and existence as a, as a Christian. Here, I'm going to say it's very simple. Here's what we should do. Show and share. Okay? Show and share. Show. I mean, live out your life. Live out your life in front of those that are in your life. And then share. Share the good news of Jesus with those in your life. Lifestyle's not enough. There's you know, so many, well, I'm just going to be a nice person, and they're going to see how nice I am. They're going to want to have Jesus. No, they're not. There must come this moment where we go verbal and we say, this is God's plan of salvation. Evangelism and discipleship, it's not a program. Here's what it's about. It's about investing in people. And the church doesn't have a mission unless you have a mission, because we are the church. So you and I, we don't have a mission unless the church has a mission about helping lost people find Jesus and then living their life for Jesus. There, there's a, one of the stories in the Bible that's my favorite story about this because I see myself so much in this person. It's in Mark chapter five. There's this day when Jesus, he was on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, gets in a boat, rows over to the east side, the Decapolis, that's the non-Jewish side, and he gets out of the boat and immediately is met by this guy that has so many demons, he calls himself Legion. 
And all the people in the town are afraid of him. They, they tried to shackle him, but he broke the chains and he's naked. He's living in the tombs like a dead person. He's taking rocks and he's cutting himself. He's in agony. And then he sees Jesus. He says, what do you have to do with this God, the son of the God most high? And then Jesus casts out the demons. They're gone, and the demons leave the man, and they go to this, this herd of swine, and they ran down the hill and into the, the, the Sea of Galilee, and they drowned themselves because they had more sense. And they'd rather be dead than controlled by demons. And I love this line. I absolutely love it. It says the man was clothed in his right mind. You see, before he was naked and he's out of his mind, but then he meets Jesus and he's clothed and in his right mind. And then Jesus told him this, and this is what he says to all of us. Mark chapter five, verse 19. Jesus said, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. That's our job. That's it. Pretty simple, right? Go tell your friends how good Jesus is. How he's had mercy on you. That's how I'm going to conclude this sermon. I'm going to tell you about Jesus and how awesome he is. Because the Bible says we are sinners. Every single one of us, we are fallen by our nature. And yet while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. We don't get cleaned up, get us our act together and then come to Jesus. No, we come to Jesus and he cleans us up. There must come this moment of time that you recognize that you're a sinner. And Jesus is the great God, the only God, the only way that came and died for sinners. The Bible has the most beautiful promise you'll find anywhere. It says, whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. You've never cried out to Jesus to save you. I beg you to do that now. Say, dear God, I'm a sinner. Yet you love me. You would look upon someone's me, like me, with love. And you would choose to save me. Lord, I give you my life. Save me from my sins. I'm yours. Do with me what you wish. I pray this name of Jesus Christ. Amen.